this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode 10 of the Forensic Advancement season, Just Science interviews Dr. Peter Stout, CEO of the Houston Forensic Science Center, as he discusses the current state of the HFSC and his philosophy of giving the right answer at the right time. In 2003, the New York Times labeled the Houston Police Crime Lab as one of the worst forensic science facilities in the country. Fifteen years later, that reputation has been completely overhauled. In that time, Dr. Peter Stout and his team have done incredible things with this once-troubled program. Stay tuned as he discusses how they utilize total transparency and blind proficiency testing to improve the reputation and quality of the Houston Forensic Science Center in this episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan. Our guest today is the eminent Dr. Peter Stout, the chief executive officer, now the man in charge at the Houston Forensic Science Center. He has a PhD from the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center in Denver. He has more than 15 years of experience in forensic science and forensic toxicology. Before going to HFSC, where were you, Peter? I was at RTI International for about a decade. Yeah, and had a wonderful time there. It was there. great. No, RTI was a great place. I really enjoyed being there. It was a real challenge for me walking away from it. But you are now happily yeah. ensconced at the Houston Center uh, and doing some amazing things. Well, I appreciate that. It's, it's a heck of an adventure there. Absolutely. So it's really kind of an incredible thing. And I don't want to overstate in terms of, like, responsibility. We're going to try to avoid that. But the fact is that there was a lack of investment in Houston for a long time, mm -hmm. and there was a lack of independence of the crime laboratory, and that resulted in some real serious issues down it in resulted Houston. resulted in a 2003 New York Times headline, the worst crime laboratory in the country. So tell me about kind of what the descriptions were based on. I mean, there were some very significant management issues and other things as well. Yeah, when, when I talk with people and tell about the arc of what Houston was to what we hope Houston will be, it's not that there was anything going on in Houston that was completely unique. You see the issues that were at Houston all over. All kinds of laboratories struggle with all the various things that were going on in Houston. Fundamentally, not enough resources. Fundamentally, a management structure that didn't understand what running a crime laboratory really means. And that led to insufficient training, insufficient procedure, and everything in between that spools out of that, up to and including some really unfortunate, inappropriate results and in behavior, wrongful convictions, you name it. I think what is different about Houston and why it sticks out is the scale. It's a huge city. It's like it's a what, huge city. the fourth biggest city in fourth the Fourth biggest city in the U.S. Some call it the third. Kind of depends on whether you're living in Chicago or Houston as to which way you go on that. <laughs> Houston and Chicago are very similar in both geographical area and population. It is an enormous city. And that enormous city and the scale of the economy of Houston creates a very large media market, very aggressive media market. There's a very aggressive defense bar, which really are good things. 
mm -hmm. but it did make for a level of attention on what Houston was that made it much more visible than some of the same problems that exist elsewhere. Like you said, it had some of the same problems that exist elsewhere, and so it's a difficult to say where Houston would have sat on the bell curve of uh, experience within mm -hmm. crime laboratories. There's no question, though, in my mind, where you sit now, because you're on the way other extreme in many regards, because what you're doing now is your independence mm -hmm. is as strong as anybody in forensic science today. Your transparency is about as strong as anywhere you'll find. In fact, I say now, Peter Stout believes in radical transparency. Yeah. Which, yeah. And I know you well enough to know that yeah. you actually believe that. Yeah. And yeah. actually, you know, want to implement that and are implementing that. Crazy bald guy that is after some of these things. <laughs> yeah, right. the, yeah, exactly. The radical transparency, when the, the term, and I've used it, and it's funny how it's kind of stuck, but actually, Sandy Thompson, one of our board members, was testifying to a congressional committee and use that term of radical transparency. And I liked that term and have stuck with using it because it really is a, a philosophical shift and a real mindset that we've had to work with the organization about. And it's not like that's an easy thing. Even in our organization, it's not always easy for us to stretch to that point of pushing that much information out, of interacting with the media that much, mm -hmm. of talking till they drop but it pays dividends, it really does. So you're also out on the edge. So one of the other things that you're doing, which is very unique, is blind proficiency mm -hmm. in uh, five disciplines now? Actually six. We don't have it in audio, video, and crime scene. Okay. And while I've got a few ideas about how there might be some things we could do to help change that, how people approach the work, even in those, you know, it's kind of not ethical to make a blind crime scene that sure. means I'd have to have a sacrificial body or something like that. Mm -hmm. So everywhere we have been, we have thought there's some way we can try and do it. We're trying to get that built in there. And also, I think, in terms of your performance metrics, the kinds of turnaround times, mm -hmm. that's a little bit more common, but you still have a fairly rigorous approach in comparison to where most labs are right now with respect to your throughput and mm -hmm. your turnaround times for evidence? Yeah, that's one that certainly originates with the board. I think it has become our unofficial tagline for the company of the right answer at the right time. I found a couple of years ago a number of times I was having a discussion with people about the fact that the right answer late does the justice system no more good than the wrong answer on time. Yeah. The laboratory often gets fixated on the quality of the result. Law enforcement often gets fixated on the timing of the result. And neither one does what everybody needs by itself. We have to figure out how to get the correct answer that everybody needs, that everybody can depend on, at a time that matters for the rest of the system. Because if it's late, I mean, it just doesn't matter. When HPD transferred operations to the Houston Forensic Science Center, I'm reading from your abstract, there was a backlog of 12,000 requests and a turnaround time of 150 days on average. On average. Well, there was stuff that was four or 500 days. And that's an extraordinary, so where are you all now? For last month, we're right around 40 days on average, and we are right around 3,000 backlog requests. Mm -hmm. Now, that's also including the fact that about a year and a half ago, we got 2,500 latent print requests because of some issues in the property room, and these were latent print cards that had never been requested. So that 2,500 requests came across in the space of a couple of days. Many of those were years old. So that added into our backlog 
but that's still part of the about 3,000 that we've got right now. So You expect some backlog mm -hmm. in any kind of process, mm -hmm. and so that's to be expected to some degree. But what's really impressive, let's put it this way, is going from 150 to 40 days. So what were the strategies that you used? Some of it predates you, but it's really yep. on your watch now, yeah. so that you're using to uh, get that turnaround time into that 40, 45-day range. Certainly to, to caveat that, we still have some significant backlogs. We still have some places where that turnaround time is significantly longer than we would like, and we still have work to do. Biology is probably the primary place, and it's the place we've got work to do over this next year of how we get that where we want it. So our goal of turnaround time is from the point at which the agency requests to the point at which we send the report is less than 30 days. Mm -hmm. And I know there's everybody uses different places where they measure that, when it was received at the laboratory or when it was assigned or all of these things. But my board was very adamant about that. I agree with them that if we don't recognize from the point of request to the point of report, that gap between when an agency thinks that work needs to be done and when the lab picks it up, nobody's accounting for that really. Mm -hmm it still is time against the entire system. It's still a time that a defendant is sitting in jail or a victim isn't getting an answer that they need. So if we gotta own it to fix it, fine, we'll own it and work on fixing it and we'll reflect it in our time. So like our latent print turnaround time, last few months it's ranged upwards of about 400 days because really when those latent print requests were made was three years ago. Right. They sat in the property room, I didn't have any access to them, I didn't even know they were there, but fine, I'll own that time because it's part of fixing this. So long answer to part of your question there of, some of it is just simply saying, fine, we'll own the problem and work sure. on it. And turnaround time is not a perfect measure no. either, really. No, no, no. So we refer folks to Paul Speaker's uh, podcast, and he's done some other presentation work on this, about the DNA mm -hmm. uh, capacity. And one of the things that happens is that if you get a 1% improvement in turnaround yeah. time for DNA, you're going to get a more than 1% increase yep. in demand, yep. which is a good thing. Yep. That means that people realize the value of what you're doing. Exactly. And they're demanding more. You're building your capacity to serve yep. the criminal justice system. And we've seen some of that, I think, because over the three years that I've been at HFSC, we've seen a march up in the number of requests overall coming in. The mix has changed. But really, the underlying crime rates really haven't changed. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm starting to ask questions about that for gun crimes because that does look like it may have actually gone up, the fundamental crime rate around gun crimes. But I think we've seen that as we've gotten faster more requests have come in. So we've had to contend with that as well in our improvements of capacity and turnaround time. So that raises an interesting question. There are some agencies, like in firearms, mm -hmm. that uh, look at it in terms of like a multi-stage approach. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, there are some firearms identifications that you can call it lights out, if you will, mm -hmm. where the modern imaging systems are really, really good. Mm -hmm. You're almost using forensics more as an intelligence tool at that yep. point. That's, you know, the, the Niven entry and Niven end of things is, mm -hmm. is more on that intelligence investigative end. Now, are you all moving in that direction as well? And how are you relating to your police departments? So uh, uh, the Niven function resides with us. And we are one of 11 Niven entry points in Texas. I think some of the last statistics I saw there, our laboratory accounts for about half of everything that goes into Niven from Texas. And something upwards of about 80% of the hits. I mean, we, we get sure. a lot of the stuff out of Niven. With fired evidence, cartridges, our goal there is between 24 and 48 hour turnaround time mm -hmm. on fired evidence. And uh, really for that, we hit that. We're typically closer to 24 hours on getting the Niven result. 
back to HPD because of that investigative need. Right. And so, that has an enormous impact. Oh, enormous impact. And are they then reflecting that in their investigation processes? I think so. I think so. I think mm -hmm. so. Now, where we have some work to do even on firearms, I mean, I'm, I'm really pleased. We've got lots of anecdotal stories about how we've had fired evidence pulled off of a scene, basically gotten a Niven answer back within hours, and that has led to arrests and made the intelligence value far more effective. We process an awful lot of weapons a year. I think we're five, 6,000 weapons a year kind of scale. Mm -hmm. And we process all automatic weapons. We don't necessarily immediately or, or process automatically um, revolvers, derringers, things that don't eject the cartridge. Sure. But any automatic we process automatically to go into Niven. And there is more of a challenge. And that's we, we've got a bit of a backlog in processing those guns. Mm -hmm. We've got about 500 of them that are over 30 days. And talking with ATF, really the goal on those is to get those down to 48 hours. Oh, okay. So we've got some work to do on figuring out just how to do that. Whereas there have been points in the time I've been at HFSC that the relationship with HPD has been quite strained. Right now it's, it's quite good, and I think there's a really good possibility for a partnership with HPD about how we get those weapons down into that 48-hour time frame to get an answer back on an Ivan entry for weapons, and also accommodate not losing latent prints and DNA that may be there on mm -hmm. those weapons as well. Yeah, and the other portion of this is that the quality of the work still is important. So one of the other things that you're doing very uniquely, and I don't know anywhere else it's doing, is this blind proficiency work. So describe kind of how you've approached that in these disciplines, because I tell you, even some very strong crime lab directors are like, I don't know how that gets pulled off. It's operationally very difficult. It is very difficult, and I am a gigantic proponent of blind testing. I think that's because... I cut my teeth in my career in the military system. Military drug testing laboratories and federally regulated drug testing laboratories have used blinds in those systems for 30 years. Right. So I grew up within a system that blind proficiency is already there. So the, the goal of this is can we insert in every workflow that we can figure out how to do this constructed case materials that we know what the answer should be and it runs through the system in such a fashion that the analyst does not know that they're handling a constructed material, and we look at what comes out the other end. So we put ground truth, ground positive truth, ground negative truth through the system and see what comes out. Mm -hmm. It's a system control. So it's a hook on a systematic error rate. It's a hook on a lot of different things. It's also a means of altering people's perception of how they're approaching the casework because they don't know whether I have hold of a controlled material or I have hold of an actual case. Right. But it is not... Easy. <laughs> it is the only way, though, to really combat somebody who's not just being negligent, but yep. actually doing misconduct. Yep. And, you know, over the years in various laboratories I've been a part of running, I have had personnel that have done inappropriate things in making results. If somebody is out to deliberately support the system, it is difficult to detect unless you have something built within the system that they don't know is there. Sooner sure. or later, they're going to stumble on it. Well, as you know, one of the other things that we do at RTI is the National Laboratory Certification yep. Program, which is based on proficiency testing. It's yep. not as blind as what you're doing in Houston, but it's pretty blind. Yeah, the open proficiencies that go out, the laboratory knows what they have. Right. But the system itself also does have blinds that are mm -hmm. to be submitted from submitting 
agencies, you know, the, cl mm -hmm. the clients that submit to them. So the laboratories do get blinds and the requirements for actual stuff that moves through the laboratory's process blind. And obviously I can't say specifically, but there have been two laboratories in just the last year that got caught yep. not doing things the way they were supposed to be doing. Uh, and happens. those mechanisms are extraordinarily important if you're going oh, yeah. to have confidence yep. in the results that come out of a lab. Yeah, so I've been really pleased with how it's gone so far. We've learned a lot of lessons of where it's difficult to make these happen. And actually, I've had some conversations with ETL Drawer about the blind systems and the realities of the blind systems because none of the limb systems are designed to be able to handle blinded materials moving through the limbs. Right. So you're already at a disadvantage trying to move these things through the laboratories. How do you get them into the systems, out of the systems, understand where these things are within the systems when the systems aren't designed to handle them? So as mm -hmm. we've been transitioning limbs, that has been part of what's driven us to modify our entire limbs infrastructure is to accommodate blinds. It's not the entire reason, but it's one of the reasons in there. It's a lot of how we're designing new systems around this so that we can better accommodate getting blinds in there. But some disciplines are a little easier than others. Controlled substances is one of the harder ones. Mm -hmm. It's one of the places where personnel spot them. So I've, I've got a backhanded bet with the staff that's always <laughs> out there that if they spot a blind, and it really is a blind, I've got a Starbucks card in it for them. Sure. And if they spot something they think is a blind and they, it's not a blind, they owe me a buck. So I've handed out about a dozen cards now. We've run 400-something blinds through there, and I've, they've spotted about a dozen of them. And I'm up two bucks. There you go. And both of those are stories that I really like. One, they're amusing, but they're telling of the change in perceptions of things. So one was in toxicology that the analyst swore up and down was a blind because if you looked at the name as it was handwritten out and you sanded it out, it looked like more tequila oh. on a toxicology sample. She was I hope we, hope we wouldn't that be that joke. obvious. Well, actually, I think what the name was was Montequilla, and ah. it was an N in there that looked like an R, but, you know, it, it looked like more tequila. Sure. Great for a toxicology, but it was a real sample. The other one was real early on. We had samples running in the toxicology, and I think it was actually over in biology that they thought they had a blind. We didn't have any blinds running through biology. So just merely the discussion that these things are around, that we're doing this stuff, people were beginning to perceive this may be a blind, even in sections where we didn't have blinds running. Sure. Now, it's not a controlled research experiment, but it certainly is a very valuable piece yep. of data. You say you've done about 400 series thus far. Yes, yeah, so, uh, something in about that range. Probably about half of those have gone through toxicology, mm -hmm. and then the others are scattered between... Actually, firearms is probably the next most mature. That was the next one we started with, controlled substances after that. Latent prints is rapidly getting to be much more mature. Mm -hmm. Biology still kind of sits out their ways, and one of the reasons there, I've talked some with Doug Hares and the INDUS program about how we can appropriately integrate blinding into the interaction with CODIS. There's no feasible way to blind it through the entirety of CODIS, and I, it's not what I'm after, but it's how do we interact enough with CODIS that we can have cases that are, can, are designed to be CODIS eligible, and we can at least have it work through the system blinded enough. Right. Work. And there's still some work to do on that. So that's kind of held us back in biology. And then digital evidence is one of the newest ones for us. And that is a whole new unique set of challenges of how do you make a case material to go through digital. And sure. I've done some thinking around this whole idea about digital evidence mm -hmm. and how you, how you even know what your confidence is in digital evidence. I think yeah. you and I have both yeah. had those yeah. conversations. That's a difficult it area. Is. It is. It's real difficult. Right now we've got basically they're pulling cell phones 
So they'll, they'll go buy burner cell phones. Mm -hmm. And then we've got a bit of a network around the laboratory that basically spends time on their lunch breaks and things like that, texting the t phone that's being built as mm -hmm. though there's a drug deal going. So you're basically feeding information into this over a period of time to make it look like a legitimate wow. case material. Wow, that's a lot of trouble. So how are your folks doing? So, so far, we have not had a material go through yet that has not performed as we expected, with the caveat of we've had some that, as it's first gone through, it's not done what we expected, but we, we understand why that's happened. One that was just most recent was, so one of Houston's claims to fame, we have a lot of PCP. It's actually in our top five DUI drugs is PCP. Makes mm. you really comfortable driving on the roads. But we manufactured a PCP cigarette, so regular cigarette that then we spike with just Cerulean standard PCP. That cigarette had gone through the lab two times previously. So, you know, trying to make materials that we can repeatedly run through and sure. see the consistency of things. The third time through, they got no controlled substance detected. Okay, so your first clutch is, did something get switched? So that's part of what you're looking for with blinds is simply sample identifications appropriate through the whole system. Reran it, looked at what our results were, the rerun results on that material came back the same, no PCP present. Well, what's happening with it is the repeated processing of that cigarette, mm -hmm. particularly really what is pretty low concentrations relative to a real PCP cigarette. We just exhausted the PCP that's there and it's below detection. So we've had some items like that. We've had a couple of times where the quality section itself has made an error in making the blind. Mm -hmm. So the result that's come out of the laboratory is correct with what the material actually ended up, but it wasn't what quality had intended it to be based on their error. So that's, that's what we've seen so far of stuff not performing as we expect. One of the things that I take some confidence that this is working well, if you look at the time that it takes for a blind to go through the system and come out as a report, that time matches very nicely the turnaround time for all casework going through there. It's one of those things, I mean, you mentioned the open proficiencies in the NLCP program. Right. It was always something that struck me and it's part of what I've been keeping an eye on in this. And it's a criticism of open proficiencies in general. People don't actually treat them as actual casework. Here are our babies today. Right. We're going right. to put them aside. Let's make sure we get the best person on it. And it always struck me. And even having been an RPN regulated lab, you get that batch in. RP being responsible, responsible person, person, the person who's, yeah, the, you know, who's basically responsible for making sure that that lab is The designated planned, inmate yeah. for the lab, yeah. But that, you know, programmatically there were 10 business days to get those results back. These are high throughput workplace drug testing laboratories that turn a negative result around in about eight hours and a positive result around in, you know, 10 to 12 hours. And routinely, those open proficiencies take nine to 10 days. So, you know, they don't go through the same way. So with these blinds, I'm encouraged to see that they move through the system similarly to actual casework. So we're approximating better how casework actually goes through. I've been really pleased with the fact that the staff actually seem to really like the fact that blinds are there. Sure. I get lots of feedback on it that it is an added layer of confidence for them to answer the question on the stand. So. How do you know that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing with the, your procedures? Well, right. I don't know if I'm handling a casework material or a control material. It's um, extraordinary. You're doing a, basically a black box study. Yep, in all the time. You all talked last year about this program, at least in the toxicology area mm -hmm. here at ASCLAD, and again, you're presenting it today. Labs are still have this kind of mind block about 
the fact that I just don't know how I'm going to make this operational in mm -hmm. my lab. And it's unfortunate because I think it can be done. I just, it hasn't yet caught on outside yeah. of Houston, unfortunately. Well, I do acknowledge, and it's one of the things where in my conversations with people who are very much an advocate for blind testing, blinding of process, those types of things, is it's one thing for me with 200 employees, a dedicated quality division that can manage this outside of production for me to manage a program like this is a whole nother thing for a laboratory that has 24 people. Mm -hmm. And by the Bureau of Justice Statistics Survey of Publicly Funded Crime Labs, more than half of the labs in the country have fewer than 24 people. How do you do this in a lab that's got nine people in it? That's much, much more difficult. And I'm not sure the answer to that. Well, yeah, that's a discussion for another time. Yeah. There's probably some strategies around standardization yeah. of, of evidence and things of that yeah. nature and evidence kits and so on. Well, I'm very interested. I keep asking the question, who's doing something blind, whether it's blind re-verifications, blind samples moving through. I found very, very few things in the whole world. The only thing I've found so far that's close to the scale we're doing are actually the regulated laboratories that get thousands, but they're doing tens of thousands a day. But I'm, if you hear of anything, I'm really interested to understand what those programs are and, and see what they're doing. We had uh, another podcast from Ramit Plushnik Masti, who is your public information officer. You're very fortunate to have Ramit, who actually was a reporter herself yep. and who has an instinct for how to make radical transparency work. And you're the lab director. I guess. Yeah, yeah CEO, whatever <laughs> you want to call it. And if transparency is not working, it's going to look really bad. Yeah. So tell me, how do you live with transparency as the CEO of the Houston Forensic Science Center? As I was saying a little earlier on some of this transparency, even in our organization, we argue about it a lot. Even in our framework, where I've got a board that is not simply supportive of this, they are demanding of it. Even in an organization where I am highly supportive of this, we argue about this a lot. It's not easy. It is uncomfortable at times. It is a little counterintuitive at times of walking calmly at the flames, but darned if it works. It's you, a culture thing. It is. It is. But it's a culture that's not a once and done. It takes a lot of time to adapt to being comfortable with understanding a reporter is not the enemy. A reporter is doing a job. The good reporters, it's much easier to work with the fact that they're doing a job. They're doing a very important job. And in our current climate, this has not gotten any better of looking at the press of doing not just an important job, but a central job to the functioning of our way of governance and way of life. Mm -hmm. They're doing a job. Treat them with respect. Talk with them. Be forthcoming with information it's a whole lot easier to work with them. Even the ones that are aggressive, the ones that are obviously after the salacious story, even those, if you approach them that way, it is a whole lot easier. But it's counterintuitive to a lot of people. Well, Vermeet makes a point because you've increased staff, but you also have had a lot of staff turnover since the transition. Yep. And you have a lot of younger folks yep. uh, in your laboratory. And your transparency as a lab uh -huh translates, as she puts it very well, into the transparency that they are expecting for their own work. No question. And so if you have an acceptance of a culture where, hey, mistakes happen, yep. right? You're going to have error yep. in a human endeavor. Yep. And the real mistake is you're not sharing that with us so that we can improve our processes. Yep. And unquestionably, there have been places that we've had missteps. There are places that I have not done enough to facilitate better communication within the organization. 
And it shows pretty quick when we are not engaging staff enough, when we are not being forthcoming enough to staff themselves about how decisions got to where they're at, engaging them in the process of asking, does this make sense before I do this? It shows. Again, it's not like you can flip the switch and be suddenly transparent and it's all rosy. It is kind of a constant work thing because it, it cuts both directions. You got to get kind of comfortable with the fact you live in a fishbowl. Right. It's just part of the deal. Here's my pushback on it, hmm? and that is you are in a different position than most crime laboratories. Yes, I am. Your, your level of independence is extraordinary. The mayor appoints your board to a staggered term, but can't Correct. remove people from your board. It's very difficult for them to be removed. And so as long as your board is happy, then you're doing okay. And you do not work for HPD, the nope. Houston Police Department, or any other police department. Nope. You are the Houston Forensic Science Center, which is a quasi-governmental agency. Yep. And that is really interesting in terms of structure. It is what the National Academies wanted yeah. when they said, hey, let's have some independent crime laboratories. Yeah. It does take people, and it's even taken me a, a while to learn how to explain what HFSC is, because it is kind of a unique beast. Mm -hmm. But that board is who I work for. That board is who can fire my butt if they're not happy with me. It's not the mayor. It's not HPD. You know, certainly if they're not happy with how the laboratory is performing, there's going to be discussion and I need to be responding to that. But I don't work for them. Yeah, so in other contexts, there are quasi-governmental corporations. Huh? Uh, in I uh, think of the Washington Suburban Sanitary Commission is a corporation. Yep. It's uh, a lot of metro districts. That's right. The, the Washington Metro is another yep. one, as well as other transportation authorities. Yep. Uh, a lot yep. of airports are yep. like that. Hospital mm -hmm. districts, a lot of those things. No others in forensic science, though. I think I am not aware of any others in forensic science. Uh, the closest thing would be in the UK with the forensic science forensic service. Forensic science service. Yeah. Yeah which has been an up and down in terms uh -huh. of the structure that, yeah. that hasn't been as stable. Actually, you all are probably more stable now than FSS in terms of where things are heading. I like to think so. Mm -hmm. And I field a lot of questions about, okay, so where does your money come from? Well, right. fiduciary relationship is between HFSC and the city of Houston, not HFSC and HPD, not HFSC and the DA's office, between HFSC and the city of Houston. So on the annual basis of how we're structuring our budget, I go to my board with a budget. Mm -hmm. My board is who approves my budget, but that budget then becomes part of the city of Houston's budget. So the vast majority of our money comes from city of Houston. The vast majority of our work comes from HPD, which makes sense. It's the single largest law enforcement agency in Texas. I think it's the fifth or sixth largest law enforcement agency in the country. They will always be the vast majority of the work. We do have a few contracts that are basically pilot scale contracts with some of the outlying counties and mm -hmm. municipalities. While we are structured in such a way that we could create a contract with mm -hmm. basically anybody. Sure, you could not, do fee for service if you want. We, we could do fee for service. It's not really been a focus until we get the work for Houston straight. And we're right. getting much closer to that. But we do have basically examples of how we could do this. And if we get more work with other agencies like that, it will probably change the dynamics of how some of this works. But it is no question, and I have to acknowledge, we have some significant advantages in doing some of the things we're doing over most, if not almost all of the lab other laboratories in the country. Sure. I don't view that as, hey, look at us, we're so cool. I look at it more that that demands a responsibility on our part to go try and push things. I can take risks that others can't. Well, yeah, Ramit was saying that some of the folks in the forensic science community maybe look a little warily mm -hmm. on Houston Forensic Science Center, partly because you're kind of out on the edge. Mm -hmm. 
but I think it's a different kind of wariness in the sense of like, okay, they're putting themselves out there. Yeah. I want to see what happens. Because yep. <laughs> yep. I think if people see that you're able to be successful right. and, and make it work to go out there on those limbs, that it'll be like, okay, it's, it's safer for me right. to kind of inch out myself. I, mean, I, I see it as our responsibility to go inch out on those limbs, demonstrate what works, take the risks of some stuff failing so that others that don't have the same structure, they're in a structure that they have to have more proof that this works to convince their systems to do that so that they've got an example that they can say, well, here's what happened there. This is what they did. This is how it worked out. That's why it's not a chance for us to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's everything from blinds to how we interact with the media to how we're structuring our IT systems. The drive that we have to put all of our systems cloud-based to be able to take advantage of the security aspects of it, the scalability of storage, the fact that it's a whole heck of a lot cheaper mm -hmm. than I'm not in the server business, I'm in the forensic business. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense for me to do servers, but it's a terrifying thing for a lot of organizations of making that step over into cloud-based. Oh yeah, I can uh, attest to some of that yeah. in my own experience. Well, Peter, you know, we uh, certainly wished you good luck on your journey from <laughs> RTI to Houston. I'm glad to see you're making good down there and, well, I and making some amazing things happen. Always pleased. I, I really do appreciate the partnership that we have with RTI. I mean, we have a lot of things that we procure from RTI. I mean, all of, all of the toxicology blinds that we do, uh, RTI manufacturers. Um, Proudly so. We're they, glad to be able to do that really do a marvelous job of that kind of stuff. So, you know, I really, I appreciate the support that RTI has out there for the community and what you've been doing with the group is marvelous. I, it's been good to see the group continue to blossom. So thank you. Oh, no, it's been, a, it's been an exciting time all around. So, and very much a pleasure to have you on the, on the podcast. Very well, much. Appreciate so. the chance to be here. So thank you all also. You are listening in today to the Just Science Podcast. We appreciate your uh, continued uh, interest in, in forensic science improvement. Please make sure on whatever platform you're using to download the podcast that you're giving us lots of stars and thumbs up and giving us positive reviews. And please tell your friends and colleagues about Just Science and all the great material that the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence provides. And thank you very much for listening today. In our next episode, Just Science interviews Special Agent Richard Marks about crime scene investigation following a mass casualty event. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.